Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. And joining us, I'm social distancing myself from him all the way across the country is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to be with you. Hey, Brandon, good to see you, good to hear from you. You know, I, I shouldn't make light of this pandemic that we're all suffering through right now. We're recording this on March 18th, so about a week and a half before this episode airs. So I'm not quite sure how everything will shake out by the time it goes live, but man, w- what a surprising, devastating thing. It shut down not only much of our culture, but our churches too are shuttering or restricting masses. How's it been affecting you out there in LA? Well, it's been a little grim. I mean, please God, it'll be over in a few weeks. I hope that the uh, virus gets under control. We can get back to uh, full operation. But for the time being, yeah, the church out here is kind of Um, shuttered most things. So there's no daily mass, no Sunday mass. All my confirmations, we had some that were prior to Easter. They've all been postponed, at least for the moment. Um, So yeah, I I think the important thing really, and I mentioned this at one of our our priest council meetings, is that we have to make sure people know the church has not shut down. The church is still there. We're still reaching out to our people. And to find creative ways to do that, even though we can't gather in large groups, but um, you know, it's a tough time. One of the things that we're doing at Word on Fire to encourage people to provide consolation is starting yesterday, March 17th, we've begun streaming daily mass from your chapel. Talk a little bit about that initiative. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I've got a little tiny chapel in my house uh, where I do my you know, morning prayers and where I, I say mass uh, if I'm not out on the road somewhere. And uh, we started filming. So Father Steve will do, I think, a lot of the weekday Masses. I might do some. And I think the plan is I'm going to do the Sunday Masses during this period. And um, it was beautifully set up by our production team. So it looks beautiful. And what I like is it's such a small space. It's very intimate. So when people are watching, I think they feel like they're just sitting in the front row of that uh, chapel. So, you know, please God, it has a good uh, impact and reminds people of, of the church's presence and how we're still praying for everybody. You can find all those videos at wordonfireshow.com slash mass. We're sharing the video at 8.15 a.m. Eastern time each morning. So that's when the mass begins, but you can go back and watch the video at any point during the day. I think we shared the first one yesterday, Bishop, and it already has over 300,000 views in like 24 hours, which we were just thrilled about, not for the vanity of that high number, but for the fact that it represents hundreds of thousands of people, most of whom can't go to local masses anymore, but are joining spiritually online around the liturgy. It's beautiful to see, isn't it? Wonderful, yeah. And you're right, it is a kind of virtual community. I'm also real pleased that, you know, Father Steve was one of the great preachers, I think, in the country that people can hear from him on a regular basis. I'm delighted about that. So again, go to wordonfireshow.com slash mass and join us each day for the foreseeable future here uh, for the sacred liturgy as we stream it online. Well, today we have one of our special Q&A episodes. This one is with non-Catholics. So we've had a lot of non-Catholics sending in questions for Bishop Barron. If you have one, whether you're a non-Catholic or not, please visit askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question, send it in. Every episode we choose at least one, but then every now and then we'll do these Q&A episodes where it's just a whole boatload of questions coming in. So Bishop, let's dive in with the first one. This one comes from Katie, she's in Dallas, and uh, she's asking about hell and how we could reconcile a loving God with the existence of hell. Here's Katie. Hi Bishop Barron, this is Katie from Dallas, Texas. I'm non-Catholic, but your show has helped me decide to convert. My question is, 
If we are all beloved children of God, how could he banish any of his children to an eternity of suffering in hell? My mom, who's also non-Catholic, asked me this and said there's nothing my sister or I could do to warrant that. Thanks, and God bless. Yeah, thank you for that. First, I'm delighted to hear about uh, you know the possibility of becoming a Catholic. That's uh, terrific. Um, you know, it's an age-old question. It's a, it's a classic question, and it's a classic dilemma. Here's one way to look at it. I've always said hell is a, um, is a, a corollary, if you want, of two more fundamental teachings, namely that God is love and that we're free. You bring those two things together. So God, God is love. That's all God is. That's all God knows how to do, is he wills the good of the other. But we're free, which means we can respond to that love or we can reject it. If we respond to it, then we have life and life to the full, as the, as the gospel would say. If we reject it, it lights up the fires of hell within us. And that's, that goes back to origin. It's repeated by C.S. Lewis. We see the idea, if, if you turn away from the divine love, you resist it, it sets up a kind of friction, a sort of spiritual friction. And so who's sending you to hell? It's not God. It's your own will. It's your own freedom. Is is creating, if you want, the conditions for the possibility of this suffering. I've used the image before of like someone at a at a party. This wonderful raucous party is going on. Everyone's having a great time, but you've decided because you're in this kind of funk. You've decided to sit sullenly in the corner and refuse to participate. Well, not only are you kind of unhappy in yourself, but the party around you is making you more unhappy, right? If you're in a really bad frame of mind, who are the most annoying people? Those who are in a good mood, right? So in a way, that's what hell means. It's the resistance to the life and the love and the joy that God wants to share with us. I've always liked Lewis's line that uh, the, the door to hell is locked from the inside, not from the outside. And so the way you frame the question, how could God ever banish someone to that state? Well, it's not so much God banishing, like God imposing this dreadful uh, sentence. It's we banish ourselves. And that's, what, that's the tragedy of sin. Sin is a self-banishment, if you want. It's a self-exile from the land where God wants us to live. Uh, so that's how I'd frame the question. Part of the problem comes from the way the question is set up. You know, God's all loving and yet he banishes, he, he cruelly sends people to this terrible state. Well, see, one way to, to dissolve the problem is to say either God isn't love or we're not free. If, if one of those two things isn't true or both aren't true, then hell goes away. The dilemma goes away. But if you hold to both those truths, and I think we have to, then you have to hold to hell as a kind of corollary of those two truths. That's how I begin maybe to frame the question a bit differently. Bishop, I think a lot of people get hung up on this problem because they think, well, okay, if we send ourselves to hell, why would anyone ever choose that? Why would anyone ever want to go to hell? But one, go ahead, ahead. answer that question. it, It happens all the time. That's my point is you can see it all the time and you see it, look in the mirror. We do it all the time. In other words, we're often our, our own worst enemies, right? You know that, that mysterious line in the gospel when Jesus approaches someone, I think it's the um, it's a paralyzed man or one of the people that he's going to cure. Do you, do you want me to cure you? Well, I mean, you think, well, duh, of course he does. But no, it's, it's anyone that's been alive for a few years knows that duh is not the answer to that question because it's not at all clear. A lot of people are, as they say, you know, enjoying ill health. <laughs> you know, 
you're you're enjoying in a perverse way this state of alienation from God. And so I, I think it happens all the time that people choose against their own true best interest. Part of the church's job is to convince people, no, look, that's not in your self-interest. Hey, talk to anyone caught in an addictive process. You know, the good that I would do, that's what I don't do. The evil that I would avoid, that's what I do. Any addict knows the truth of that. So I don't find that really at all puzzling uh, to speculate. Someone could say, no, I'm going to choose against what in fact is to my best interest. You mentioned C.S. Lewis and his line about hell being locked from the inside. It reminds me of his great book on a lot of these questions titled The Great Divorce. It's a fairly short novel, but it takes place in this uh, quasi-afterlife where a lot of the souls that have died are offered the chance to take a day trip to this sort of purgatorial midway place between hell and heaven, and they're offered the chance to go into heaven. But most of the book takes place with within this little purgatory land and all these characters offering rationalizations about, well, I'm not quite ready. I don't know if I could give this up or that up, or here's why I really need to stay here and take care of my children or whatever. The whole book is psychologizing about why people really do choose not to be in heaven with the Lord and thus to choose hell. I know you've enjoyed the book too. I have indeed. And you know, someone who knew and liked C.S. Lewis was the great poet W.H. Auden who was a convert to Christianity. One of his lines, we'd rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather die in our dread than mount the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. That's a darn good line and let it sink in. We'd rather be ruined than changed. Now he's talking about this life, not talking about the afterlife. Now, hey, look, if you just change, your life will be so much We'd rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather die in our dread. So think how many people, well, how many people, me too, I live in fear. We'd rather die in our dread than mount the cross of the moment. So there, there's, there's a cross of suffering that, that's, that we're called upon to um, accept. But we'd rather die in our dread than mount the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. What's the source of a lot of our suffering? Illusions about ourselves, about our relationships, about God. But Auden knew that. He knew it from his own life. See? We'd rather be ruined than changed. And that's exactly what the great divorce is about. Is people say, no, I'd rather actually stay in hell than, than accept the possibility of, of escape from it. So that's, you know, it's the mysterium iniquitatis, isn't it? The mystery of, of evil. That's a dimension of it. Well, thanks for the question, Katie. I echo Bishop Barron. We're super excited to hear that the Word on Fire show has played a, a role in your impending conversion to Catholicism. So God bless you along the way. Uh, next up, we got a question from Jim. He's asking about the priesthood. Here's Jim's question. Hello, Bishop Barron. This is Jim from Flagstaff, Arizona. As a Protestant, I really have a problem with the mandatory celibacy of priests in the Catholic Church. Even St. Paul seemed to say it was an option. St. Peter was married. Why not today's priests? Thank you. Yeah, another good question, a classic one too. Uh, is celibacy necessary for the priesthood? No, not necessary. As you say quite correctly, St. Peter himself, we know, was married because the gospel refers to his mother-in-law. Um, for the first thousand years of the church, roughly, uh, most priests were married. 
So it's not a necessary um, requirement of the priesthood. More to it, even today, we have a number of exceptions to the rule of celibacy. So if I can use my Thomas Aquinas language, I won't offer an argument ex necessitate from necessity, like it has to be this way. But I will offer an argument, what Thomas would say, ex um, contingentia, or rather uh, ex conveniencia, an argument from fittingness. If something is convenience, it's, it, it comes together, it's fitting. And I think that's how the church approaches the issue of priesthood and celibacy. It's fitting. Now, how come? Well, a number of things you could say. I think one is um, the freedom it gives a priest in his uh, ministry. So, St. Paul, whom you cite, and who, by the way, as far as we know, was a celibate, right? But St. Paul, who says, you know, the, the married man is concerned with his wife and his kids, and that's appropriate. That's the way it should be. But someone who's not married can give him or herself totally to the Lord. Well, there's a lot to that. I mean, you can now utterly devote your time, energy, and so on to the works of, of the Lord. Um, you know, Brandon, you're a married man with, uh, with lots of kids. And, you know, I don't mean an ounce of criticism when I say this, but your first responsibility, appropriately, is to your wife and your kids. Of course it is, you know. Uh, if I have a celibate priest let's say, working for me, I, I might expect that he would be able to give more of his time and energy because that's his primary responsibility. So that's, that's the case. Um, you know, read the, the new book by uh, uh, Cardinal Sara and, um, and Pope Emeritus Benedict, and you'll find that kind of argument from um, fittingness. The, the total dedication, the total devotion to the Lord is expressed through um, the celibate commitment. I'd also say this, there's an eschatological dimension to it. You know, when the, the Lord is asked about, you know, the, the uh, um, uh, person who's married many times, and then how about in heaven? Well, who's his husband, who's his wife, and so on. And the Lord says, well, look, in, in heaven, it won't be that way. Here below, we, uh, we marry and are given in marriage. But in heaven, it won't be that way. How do we love in heaven? Well, we love in this extraordinarily expansive way, the way that God loves, that God loves everybody, right? Well, there's something like that angelic manner of love that obtains in heaven. And so even now here below, are there certain people called, namely celibates, to love even now the way we will all love in heaven, in this non-married way? And that's part of the spirituality of celibacy, actually, is, is not the restriction of one's life, but the expansion of one's life. It's a way of loving that is more expansive than simply focused on this particular uh, woman, these particular kids. There's something universal and expansive about it. Talk to great pastors, you know, for whom their parish really is their family. And there is this wonderful big-heartedness about the manner of, of their love. That's a fruit of celibacy when it's properly lived. Anyway, what I've been offering are arguments ex conveniencia, arguments from the fittingness of celibacy for the priesthood. Now, could the church change that discipline? Yeah, sure. And, and just recently, you know, in the Amazon Synod, there was talk about so-called viri probati, proven men. So are there some married men that we might ordain for specific purposes? And, you know, so sure, it's on the table in the church's conversation. Uh, I'm with Cardinal Sara and, and uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict. I think there's a very powerful argument from fittingness for celibacy. And, and I, I reverence 
the celibate priesthood and, and wouldn't want it to be compromised. But it's not an argument from necessity. There, the church has changed, had a different discipline, could have a different discipline going forward. But I think there are powerful arguments we should attend to. You know, on this question, Bishop, I'm struck by my number of married priest friends. Most of these are converts. They were, you know, a yeah. Lutheran pastor, an Anglican pastor yeah. that became Catholic priests, or friends that are involved with the Anglican ordinariate. And almost to a man, the married priests I know are the ones who most strongly yeah. affirm the norm of the celibate priesthood. They don't think married priests should be normative. They think it should be an exception. Yeah, I, I found the same thing. I've taught a number of people over the years in that situation. Great guys and, and good priests, uh, but who came into it, let's say, as you say, out of a Lutheran or an Anglican uh, background. Um, yeah, I think maybe they above all see the, the pastoral ministerial um, advantage that comes from celibacy. Um, you know, I, I, we always have to avoid any sort of us against them or, you know, who's better than whom and all that. Those don't really go anywhere, those arguments. There's a variety within the mystical body and there are arguments from uh, fittingness that, that apply in regard to celibacy. It, when people ask me about it too, especially coming out of a biblical perspective, I will say, well, you know, if you want the deepest reason, it's that Jesus was a celibate. Uh, and I don't think anyone disputes that. And so if, you know, I say as a priest, I'm trying to conform myself as radically to Jesus, as a, now as a bishop, a successor of the apostles, um, living in sort of this intimate relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I, I guess I'm celibate because he was celibate. Um, that's maybe the best argument I can come up with. Well, thanks for the question, Jim. And next we're going to go up to Canada to hear from Carrie. And she's asking about the sacred texts about of the three major Western religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So here's Carrie's question. Hi there, uh, this is Carrie from Canada. I just wondered what are the differences between the Jewish Bible uh, practice today and the, uh, the Catholic Bible? And is the Quran at all related um, to either of these uh, books? Seems to be vastly different and have vastly different followers in Islam. Yeah, it's a big question you're raising, and it would take us, you know, uh, probably a whole academic year to tease out some of those, those issues. Uh, you know, the obvious answer when it comes to the Jewish scriptures and the, and the uh, Christian Bible, uh, we accept the totality of it. It's a unique quality, I think, of Christianity vis-a-vis -vis Judaism. Is it's a rare example of a, if you want a new uh, religion, that has utterly accepted the old religion. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures, we take them all in. We've, we've accepted them, uh, but with a twist. And, and the twist is, of course, Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. So Christians would tend to read the Old Testament, which is we've, we've accepted. And I, I love how John Paul II referred to, um, to Jews as our elder brothers in the faith. It's lovely. That it, it, it catches the, the sense of honor. I mean, the, our, our whole faith comes from Israel, you know. But we accept the Hebrew Scriptures as a kind of open-ended story. If you look at it along N.T. Wright's lines, you know, the great drama of salvation history, beginning with creation, followed by the fall, followed by the formation of a people, Israel, God's great rescue operation, God's addressing the problem of the fall, but a Christian will look at the Old Testament and say, yes, all that is there 
But also, there's an unfulfilled quality to it. That is to say, Israel is waiting. It's watching. It's expecting. The Lord is, is working, yes indeed, through covenant, prophecy, Torah, temple, etc. But all of those elements are incomplete. They're imperfect. They're partial. And they look toward a fulfillment. Now read the Psalms with that lens in place. Read especially Isaiah the prophet. Read any of the prophets with that lens in place. You'll see Israel longing for a fulfillment. It begins to be expressed in terms of a desire for the Mashiach, the anointed one, the new David, because David was the Mashiach par excellence in the Old Testament. But yet they knew David himself was was incomplete, imperfect. All of David's successors were imperfect, incomplete. And so they longed for the Mashiach who would bring to fulfillment covenant, prophecy, Torah, temple, right? Now, Christians, read the entire Bible from the standpoint of the one that we recognize precisely as that Mashiach. The New Testament, and, and once you get this, the New Testament lights on fire, it seems to me. Once you, you have this interpretive lens in place, he's come. <laughs> he's come. The, the one that we've long been expecting. The one that, that we Israelites have been waiting for. He's come. And let me tell you about him. His name is Yeshua from Nazareth, and he's the Mashiach. So whenever St. Paul says Christos Jesus in his Greek, he's just translating Mashiach Yeshua. This Yeshua is the Mashiach we've been waiting for. And so now we're going to read the Hebrew Scriptures in light of this great fulfillment. And the Hebrew Scriptures now take on a whole new height and depth and breadth. So that's the way you know Catholics would look at the, at the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. I'll say this too about from a Catholic perspective. Catholics especially have reverenced all those elements I talked about, Torah, Temple, Prophecy, and so on. The very fact, for example, that I'm a um, priest, well, priest is temple talk. I'm not just a minister. So in a, in a Protestant setting, someone that proclaims the gospel is a minister, you might call him doctor, he's a teacher, right? But I'm a priest, and now as a bishop, I'm a sort of high priest. All that's temple language, isn't it? Uh, I perform, I did it this morning when I said Mass, a, a sacrifice on an altar. I offered a sacrifice. Well, that's all temple talk, isn't it? So the, the Catholic Church especially, I think, has included and reverenced all the elements within the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, you know, I'm going to say one quick word about the Quran because I'll just say it up front. I am no expert on the Quran, so please don't look to me for great insight about the Quran. But I'll simply say this. For um, Islam, Jesus is a, a great prophetic figure. A very great one indeed. Not as great as Muhammad, but a great and important prophetic figure. Um, is great respect shown to him? Yes, indeed. Even his virgin birth from Mary, yeah, that's in the Quran. But is Jesus accepted as the um, definitive fulfillment of Old Testament expectation? No, I would say. Uh, and that's where Christianity obviously uh, departs from uh, the Islamic interpretation. But I don't want to go any further because I'm no expert on the Quran. 
Well, thanks for your question, Carrie. Next up, we turn to a Protestant in Prague who shares the heralded name Brandon. So he's got a great name, which means he's going to have a great question. He's asking you about the virgin birth and how we square it with the similarities we find in other ancient myths and religions. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Brandon, and I'm a Protestant from Dallas, Texas, currently living in Prague, Czech Republic. In the Bible, we have certain stories and motifs, such as the virgin birth, that are also echoed in earlier pagan stories and in other religious uh, writings, such as the Zoroastrian scriptures and in Egyptian myths. My question is that when we have these similarities between the two, what is the best way to read them? Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Again, that's an old question. Uh, It came to a head really in the 19th century. That's when it was first uh, proposed, when people were discovering a lot of the uh, myths of both the Western and Eastern worlds, and began to say, hey, aren't these pretty much the same story? And so we have different iterations of this this fundamental uh, mythic structure. Come up to someone like Joseph Campbell in the 20th century, and you'll find another version of this, that there's the monomyth, which is iterated uh, and reiterated over and over again. Um, I'm with von Balthasar here. Balthasar said, yeah, there can often be a superficial similarity as you look at these stories, but the longer you stare at the Christian gospel, the stranger and more distinctive and unique it becomes. And let me just say a couple things about that. Um, I think you can tell an awful lot by attending to the genre of the story. Usually the genre is given away by clues that are intrinsic to the story itself, right? When you're telling a kid a fairy tale, well, you know that because of the way the story is being told. When you're telling a, a news story, well, you know that's different because of, of clues that are intrinsic to the, to the narrative. Okay. You look at a lot of these myths, both East and West. Is it clear we're dealing with the classic mythical form? Yeah, which is the kind of once upon a time, uh, I'm going to tell you a story that is expressive of natural necessities or of basic psychological truths, uh, general principles of, of reality. How am I going to do it? I'm going to do it by dehistoricizing. So I just clued there, you know, once upon a time, well, when did that happen? Oh, I don't know, a long time ago. Or I've often said, you know, Star Wars, uh, in a, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's their way of telling you right from the beginning, this is a myth we're dealing with. Oh, when, when was Obi-Wan Kenobi? What year was... Well, no one's going to ask that because it's, it's not a historical account. It's a mythic account. And then the very generic archetypal manner in which the stories are told clues you into what this is. I would argue, and again, we could go into detail you know, and, and argue fine points, but in all these cases of you know, dying and rising gods and virgin births and, and the war of gods and this, uh, this and that, what you have there are mythic expressions where something, some fundamental truth about life, nature, psychology, society is being expressed in this mythic manner. Okay, now here's Balthazar's point. You get all that, you get all that. Now look at the story in, let's say, Luke's Gospel. What don't you find? You don't find that. You don't find the clues that we're dealing here with a generic mythic story. Luke and Matthew, too, are extremely interested in historicity. The very fact that Luke says, for example, you know, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and when Augustus was was emperor, and when Herod, and 
What are they doing there? They're saying to the reader, look, I'm not dealing in a mythic trope here. I'm telling you a story about something that happened. The very fact that in the creed, I love it that right after we talk about uh, the, the virgin birth, right, he's incarnate of the Virgin Mary. What do we hear next? He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Well, see, no one's going to ask, you know in that story of Hercules, who was the local governor? Because <laughs> it's not that type of story. Or like when Osiris died and rose again, who was the pharaoh at that time? Well, it's not, that's not an appropriate question. But Christianity, from the beginning, and even in its creedal statements, is very interested in, hmm, when did this happen? Oh, yeah, Pontius Pilate. Remember him? Yeah, that, that awful Judean governor, you know, back in the 30s of the... Within the text itself, you find not the typical marks of myth. Wild elaboration, too, that sort of thing. You know, all kinds of crazy, mystic carryings on. There's a sobriety and a historicity, I would say, that are evident in these accounts that clue you into the fact that we're not dealing with the mythic genre. And so that's maybe a somewhat rambling answer to your question, but there's a, there's a fundamental difference between the myths that you're talking about and these very peculiar stories being told in the New Testament. Bishop, I'm reminded of the great argument that G.K. Chesterton makes in his book, The Everlasting Man, an argument that J.R.R. Tolkien used to help convert C.S. Lewis to Christianity, which is, all of these myths that came before Christ shouldn't be used as arguments against Christianity in the sense that we find a lot of similarities. Chesterton flipped that on its head and said, I actually take these as evidence of Christianity because if God's the author of history and history was building to the culmination of Christ's incarnation, you would expect foreshadowings earlier in the story that sort of hint at and point toward the ultimate revelation. So he saw these similarities as, uh, as a positive sign, not a negative one. Didn't he call them good, or is that Lewis called them good dreams, right? They're the, they're the good dreams. That's of the Lewis's universe. line, yeah. Yeah. And, and like Tolkien and Lewis came to the realization that the myth of Christianity, if you will, if you want to consider it one more myth. myth among many, is like the previous myths with the only difference that it's true, that it, it really, really happened. happened. Yeah, and um, yeah, didn't Lewis say too, Brandon, now to go on the other side of the question, that um, those who say Christianity is just one more myth haven't read many myths. And Lewis was someone who was, was immersed in that world, Tolkien too. They knew the mythic uh, literary form very well. And they realized, no, this is not one of those. This is a different type of story being told. Um, you know, I've often said, how many martyrs are there for Hercules? <laughs> the answer is zero, right? Because no one, no one thinks Hercules was this real figure. How many martyrs and, and evangelists were there for Osiris? The answer is zero, right? But yet Christianity from the beginning, you've got very real people who went to their deaths defending these claims. And I was just, you know, a few weeks ago, I was at the tomb of one of them, or two of them. I was at the tomb of Peter and Paul these very particular first century figures who went to their deaths proclaiming these truths about Jesus. People don't relate to mythic figures that way.
Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions. Again, if you have some, and especially if you're a non-Catholic, please send in your question at askbishopbaron.com. We'll be choosing many, many more over the future episodes. And Bishop, I, I don't know if I've ever asked you this in the 200 plus episodes that we've done together, but would it be possible for you to give a blessing to all of us, all the listeners, especially in the midst of all of this fear and worry around this virus? I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to. And I ask that the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon all of our viewers and listeners and remain forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless all of you, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Amen.